many questions I want to ask you. And of course, in this format, our participants, our readers are more than welcome to raise their hand and ask questions too. It's very interactive. Yeah, please do. <laughs> yeah, it's so fun. Well, I remember- but Terry's already got his hand up. Dude. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. Hold on just a second, Terry. I'm older than you, obviously, and I was alive and well and uh, in my reproductive beginnings at the time that abortion was illegal in Iowa. And of course, you know, like anybody, you don't think something like that's going to happen to you. It happens to other people, but not you. And I didn't really think much about it, you know, in the 60s and early 70s. My generation was all about ending the war in Vietnam and civil rights and that sort of thing. But the director of Planned Parenthood at the time was a man by the name of Robert Weber, invited me to sit in on abortion counseling sessions in his office because he would he would counsel people who were requesting an abortion and then figure out ways to help them get to other states where it was legal. And again, I hadn't thought anything about this as an issue because I didn't see it as relevant to my life. Stupid yeah. me. And uh, I'll never forget being in the room and a woman who had been on a weekend pass from Broadlawn Psychiatric U Unit had been impregnated by her brother-in-law. Mm. And it was in that moment I thought, well, well, of course she should be able to get an abortion. And it was from that moment on, it became more more than just a just a conversation. It became something real that people had should have a right to. Do you remember where anything about conversations with people you knew who were struggling with that decision and how how they handled it? So, um, and I, I tell my kids this, and I, you know, I'm a journalist. So talking about my own personal beliefs is a very difficult thing for me to do. I, I don't want to do that, especially things that have been politicized. Um, but I, I've told my kids because they, they tend to be very liberal. Um, I said, you know, it, talking about abortion rights is, or abortion access, this is, this is a conversation that requires empathy all around. I said, right. I, you know, it's it's easy for me to be sympathetic to someone who would call themselves pro-life because, right. you know, we all love babies. Right. You know, and and it's it's really easy to understand where they're coming from. Right. But. If you will exercise that empathy. And learn about the situations that may lead a woman or a pregnant person to need an abortion or want an abortion, um, the conversation just gets a lot more nuanced. If you open yourself up to the stories of women. And when I was growing up, um, and I, Tom Colvin's over there, so I knew Tom while I was growing up. And my mom um, was an elementary school counselor. And she worked, you know, in, in three different schools in Cedar Falls, Iowa. And she never violated her client confidentiality, but she would tell me stories about what students were going through without telling me, you know, who the students were. And, you know, there is, is so much between beneath the surface of every community. Yes. There is so much sexual abuse. There's so much incest. There are so many, so much rape. Um, and you don't hear about it. These are not stories that people want to share. These are stories that families will cover up until their dying days. And so it's really easy to think it's not about you and it couldn't happen to you. And um, so I grew up hearing those stories. And so although I was a very privileged young woman in a very safe place and when the Me Too movement came about, I thought, well, I mean, I've certainly been sexually harassed. I think absolutely every woman, every woman everywhere has been sexually harassed. I've I'm, I'm never been a, a victim of sexual assault, and I'm incredibly grateful. But Knock on wood, real quick. Knock right, right. But, um, you know, it's a, it happens to so many women and men. 
Um, and so many people who live with the shame of it and would never share their stories. And then now I'm, I'm an adult and people share their stories with me. That's what, you know, it's not, it's not just uh, a job. <laughs> it's also who I am in real life. People tend to tell me things wow. and I've had so many women confide in me and, you know, not, I would never have looked at them and thought, Oh, you had an abortion, but you know, they've chosen to share their stories with me and stories about a lot of other things too. And I just, we just don't ever know what battle someone else is fighting. We cannot judge someone else's experience. So that was, that was just the way I was raised, Julie. You know, although I tell you what, I love babies. <laughs> I love babies so much. <laughs> of course, of course. Boy, you just raised a topic that I am been fascinated with ever since I held a potluck in a small town in eastern Iowa. And what I what I do sometimes is I ask somebody to invite 12 people to whom they consider as influencers to come together for a potluck just to talk about what's working, what's not working in their community. And it's fascinating, but this one town in particular, for whatever reason, the people around the table, and we had the head of the Chamber of Commerce, and we had a pastor, and we had we had all these different people that the host considered influencers in their community. And for some reason or, uh, or other, there seemed to be a thread about sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. And my little naive 73-year-old mouth was down on the table because the thought of sex trafficking being an unspoken issue in this beautiful bucolic town where kids ride their bikes to and from school. And I was blown away, but you did a, a significant podcast on this with Unsettled. Did you, was, did, were you surprised by what you learned? Yes. I mean, because it's so shocking. It's, it's so deeply shocking. And again, it's one of those things that you just don't want to think is real. And, you know, I, I did an interview with a young woman who was trafficked herself and, um, you know, it here, here she was this amazing young woman in her twenties. And, you know, she, she'd done all of these different things with her life since escaping what was basically, you know, sex slavery. Um, and her story of her escape was just astonishing as well. And, you know, she had this beautiful little girl. She had to bring her with her to the interview because she didn't have childcare. And, um, you know, and, and I thought again, you know, this child could be in my child's kindergarten class. You know, you don't know, <laughs> you don't know what, what people have experienced. And it's hard. It's hard to raise kids in this world too, because um, stranger danger is something that, that, you know, we, we like to talk about. However, of course, you know, the most dangerous people in your life are the people that you know well, but you don't want to raise a child who's afraid of the world, right. you know? So it's, yeah, I, I, it's just, I don't think you could not be shocked by it, even even knowing statistics, to hear someone's story of how they were groomed and controlled and exploited, and to sit and look into that person's eyes and think, wow, that could have been me. That could have been anybody. You know, it's it is shocking. But again, I mean, that's putting a We've, we've got to put a human face on all of these numbers and ideas and stories. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, I so applaud you, Charity, because especially as legacy print media has, you know, declined and changed. And uh, there are very few people who are telling these stories and are certainly not to the level that that might have been told uh, a decade or so ago. And so I'm sure everyone on this call thanks you for all that you do. Uh, but, but back to sex trafficking, what I was surprised by is the sort of accepted truth that law enforcement was going to do nothing about it, that there had been a, a body 
discovered of a young girl next to a pond. And pretty much everyone in town knew the circumstances of the death. But the prosecuting attorney nor, nor the, the uh, police officers did anything to hold anybody accountable. And it was just sort of, it's, it, it's accepted practice. Is that what you're hearing? Do you think that's widespread or is that an unusual story? That's, that is a question I really can't answer because I mean, I do know the, just as a consumer of media, I mean, I have heard stories where law enforcement has, has been able to make a real difference. I think it's probably a community by community and a culture issue, but you know, like the, the young woman that I interviewed had to save herself, you know? Right. Um, and not everybody can do that there when someone is trafficked, you know, they are isolated. They're worked on psychologically. They're made to feel tremendous shame over what's going on. And they're, you know, all of their ability to communicate with the outside world is removed from them. So yeah. I'm glad you brought that up too, because I, I, I almost laugh, although it's not funny, because when you go into a restroom on the on the highways, there's a sign in the women's bathroom, text such and such a number if you are in danger or being trafficked. Who in the world is going to give a, a right. sex trafficked female a cell phone, for God's sake, to text they're in trouble? Right. I mean, I don't get it. I just don't get it. But, although I've always told my kids, I said, you know, and I, I think that I got this advice from somebody that I interviewed. Um, but it was again on the subject of how do you how do you prepare your kids to be safe in the world? And um the advice was if you are in trouble and you're in a public place, you should look for a mother, a mother with a child, and that woman will most likely help you. And so I've always hoped that if I'm in one of those bathrooms, <laughs> that someone would say, hey, I need your help. Yeah. But. Right. Well, let's talk about some of the episodes you've done. And by the way, as as one who who <laughs> does my own little podcast, I put an Apple loop in the front and an Apple loop in the bottom and I upload it to Substack and I listen to yours and they're all so, perf you know, the sound is perfect and the editing is perfect and. This must be quite a production that you well, you know, we are very fortunate because you know we have all of the all of the resources of a radio station <laughs> at our at our disposal. And um that's a uh, that certainly gives us a huge, huge advantage. And I also am ashamed because it has turned me into such an audio snob. I have a really hard time listening to things that aren't high quality audio, but I feel very fortunate that I have this opportunity. And I also know that most listeners are not quite as discerning as I am, thank goodness, <laughs> about audio quality. And I certainly, even in, um, to go back to season one of Unsettled, when I had Tarana Burke, who's the founder of the Me Too movement on the show, I had her on a crappy phone line and I just was so sad about that. <laughs> but, you know, uh, <laughs> so most people are willing to listen through a little bit of that sound. But, you know, we just, the, we are multitasking with these podcasts for the most part and making a radio show first and then altering it to become a podcast episode. And um, it's it's kind of exciting to be able to be that strategic. But also, yes, we have we have the microphones. We have the the ways to connect to people. We have the digital audio editing systems and we have the uh, the training. So <laughs> we. <laughs> Lucky. We do our best to make them sound really, really good. But Julie, yours sounds good too. Oh, well, yeah. I wasn't fishing, but thank you very much. Um, you know, when I moved back to Iowa and you and I had that, for, that conversation shortly thereafter, I was shocked that the Iowa legislature had defunded public radio. I thought, um, how in the world does something like that happen? You guys are scrappy. You've figured out a way to stick, but it, it, it's sad and it's something that we need to have a conversation about in terms of how you're funding because it is not cheap to have all these people editing and digitizing and blah, 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 blah. 
That is true. That is true. And now, again, that was another thing. The writing had been on the wall for a while, for those of us in the know. So um, that was not surprising when that happened. Um, the thing is, I'm so excited that we are now community licensed radio. Um, so for, for anybody who hasn't followed along with that, they, we had been, um, for years, you know, the, the, the three biggest radio stations that are part of IPR, um, were affiliated with the three regents universities. And so we, we had this funding from the universities. We also are housed in university buildings and we had this very strong, foundation and relationship. But even before I moved back to Iowa in 2010, we were on the way to getting zeroed out by the Regents Universities. And there was a little bit of separate state funding. But um, it had been a process that was happening over time. And then it happened very suddenly there at the end. Um, but the fact that we were able to, for very little cost, purchase our um, licenses from the Regents Universities is so exciting because uh, there was a danger there was always a danger that in years of budget cuts somebody was going to say you know what we can make a lot of money from selling that signal and they could have and they chose not to so we now are solely responsible for our signals for our licenses and now we have to rent the space from the universities um but so far that's gone very well as well our membership base is just outstanding and 85% of our budget now comes from community support so that's members that's also businesses that do underwriting and you know our other relationships with people and we just completed a capital campaign where we raised over 6 million dollars so Iowans have really stepped up and said, hey, this is a service that we really, really, really care about and we want to ensure its future. And it just feels so good. And I I can't speak for everyone, but I feel so much more secure about the future of public radio in Iowa than I have for years. Okay. So <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear you say that. I really am. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad. Thank you. Okay, we'll see. Terry and Bryce had their hands raised. Who wants to go first? Whoever's unmuted first. There you go, Terry. I um I I I appreciate your comments about the changing role of women and and that type of thing. Um, I've been, you know, I I've been involved in that from a very 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 long time from my South Minneapolis days. Uh, I think I've been involved. I don't know if others would have. Uh, and I'm I'm also I I spent twenty years in West Des Moines as a pastor and and. Uh, also was the police chaplain for 15 years. And so I can verify the fact that uh, there is um, a, a lot of uh, sexual abuse going on and unspoken. And I thought the interesting thing, I was served on a committee with the school district that addressed that issue. And they focused it on the Phoenix area, which is the poorer area, and didn't want to go out to uh, the other areas of, this, of, of the city, which were higher higher or finances and that type of thing. I see. So I thought it couldn't happen in the wealthier parts of town, huh? No, it couldn't. It couldn't. But one of the questions that I have has to do with, you talked about the changing role of women and about how your podcast is focused on the changing role of women. Um, I can't help but think there's a changing role for men as well. And and uh, the, the issue is in some ways, uh, the changing role of women is something that they've done um, for for men, it's for many men who come out of a situation where they've been programmed for 50 or 60 years, it's not a choice. Uh, although it needs to be. But it, it uh, I'd, I'd be interested in what you, what you have to say about the changing role of men, especially mm -hmm. men that are like me, 75 years old. You know, yeah. and, and Good it's question. a different world. No, that's a, I think that's a great topic. Um, so I have said for a very long time, and I'm incredibly grateful for the women's movement because it's made everything that I've done in my adult life possible. Uh, and a lot of my, my childhood as well, I had a lot of opportunities that my mom certainly didn't have. And, and a lot of women, the generation before wouldn't have had. Um, but 
I, I do think men needed a men's movement to set them free of these historical expectations. And women had that. And a lot, you know, there, here's Terry, you know, when I talk, talk to guys who are in Gen Z or millennials, I mean, a lot of men have, have been affected by the women's movement and have moved forward and have thrown off some of those traditional roles and um, feel, I think, much more comfortable in their own skin and with who they are in culture. But a lot of men don't. I mean, they just, they absolutely don't. And there are those expectations. I just uh, read a novel by Bonnie Jo Campbell. It's called The Waters. I had her on my show this morning. I don't know if anybody caught that conversation, but that's that's one of the things that she writes about. It takes place in this small town and you know, most of the guys used to be farmers or grew up in farm families and now there aren't enough farms. So, you know, one one family owns almost all the farming land and these guys don't know who they are. They don't know what they do. They, they're supposed to do. They feel like they're suddenly supposed to know things that they don't know and don't know how to be in the world. And a response is to be angry or violent or secretive. You know, and uh, I I 100% agree with you, Terry. And I I'm guessing that you probably have done a great deal to educate yourself, and you probably don't feel as confined by some of those historical weights. But I love men, and I have nothing against men, and I don't think <laughs> you men know, are evil know, or bad or anything. One more comment, Terry. You know, it it in some ways. Uh, I I think men need to figure out how to wait and, and help women. How, how do we do this so that we are not perceived as predators? Uh, we are, uh, you know, I used to be able to say things like, that's a lovely outfit you have on. I'd say the same thing to a guy with a suit. But then I would get complaints that I was being sexist. And, and it had nothing to do with being sexist or not. Um, and as far as being a clergy, um, you know, I feel half the time that, that people are thinking that we're all predators, but we're not. So what kind of movement can we have to, to help, uh, help help people understand that we're not okay. out to, all of us are out to exploit women? Thank you, Terry. Yeah, it's, um, you know, you, you open up a can of worms like this and, and there are so many issues that overlap. Tell me when you, when you've done the, uh, uh, podcast unsettled what has surprised you the most what are some of the episodes that have really surprised you that's a good question um you know one of the things that that was the most fun and and surprising in this um in this series, we started off with pop culture. That was our first episode. And we did that, of course, to grab attention and also get to talk about the Barbie movie, which um, started so many conversations, so many conversations. But it was so interesting to talk to our experts about other pivotal moments in pop culture for women through time. Like, I had never thought about the fact that Harriet Beecher Stowe, when she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, was harnessing popular culture to start really substantive conversations about abolitionism and that so much of of her work um turned the tide when it came to slavery in this country so that was a moment where i'm like oh oh i had never thought about it that way at all um and so uh that was that was a really fun moment and I mean, I'm a real history nerd, so um, it was really also fun for me to look back through the different waves of feminism and another really light bulb moment for me was in learning about second wave feminism. I knew that women of color felt left out of that movement, and I knew that that movement came out of primarily women, white women of privilege who were frustrated with their boring lives and feeling trapped at home, et cetera. But um, when uh, my guest, you know, put it in terms of the black women were already working. So this movement didn't speak to them. You know, women of color were already working and they were like, wait, you want jobs? <laughs> we have jobs. This is not about us. 
at all. I'll trade places with you. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, um, I mean, that was, that was a really fun and surprising moment as well. I mean, the, the hardest part is just, there were so many, every single one of those shows, there were so many conversations that I wanted to have that we didn't get to have. And that's, that's the hardest thing is deciding, okay, what, what do we put in this? And I kept telling the producers, I have three, we have three full-time producers who work on both Talk of Iowa and River to River, but we kind of timed this series while uh, Ben Kiefer was away so that everybody could give it their full attention. But I kept telling them, you're going to overbook these shows. You are going to overbook these shows because we have these amazing fertile topics and (laughs) we cannot cover everything. And they, they all had to like call people back and say, I'm sorry, we can't have you on this episode. Okay, And then also we have so many ideas for other shows that we could do on the same topic. I want to ask you about those too, but let's take a couple of calls. Cheryl Tevis, let's do, let's call on you next. And then Bryce, Cheryl, and you need to unmute. All right. Hello. Hi. It's nice to see your face. I just know you from email mostly and and occasional phone calls. I know occasionally. (laughs) That's right. Well, it is good charity. And I wanted to make sure I had the, um, I went ahead and planned to be on this call today because I uh, am very interested in the work that you're doing, especially with the podcast, but many other things. Okay, question is, um, I was wondering if you have any thoughts or if this has come up in any discussions about the um, initiative to remove um, gender as a consideration of on for gender balance uh, from a consideration on you know city and state and other boards and i wondered is this do you sense is this a reaction to women you know like uh feeling maybe um you know they uh, they've they've gotten into enough things you know let's just kind of stifle this a bit or is it more of the also, the other trend going on, just, you know, diversity and uh, equity and all of that and, F, you know, balancing out that that we've seen at universities and other institutions, or is it a combination? What What's your read? I I honestly think that it's part of that, that demonization of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. Um, so I we did talk about that. Uh, Karen Kodrowski is the director of the Carrie Chapman Katz Center for Women in Politics at Iowa State University. And she is so brilliant. So, you know, part of me is like, why don't why don't I just have you on my show every day, Karen? You tell me <laughs> what we should talk about and we'll do that. Um, because she her depth of knowledge, plus she's she's just super fun too. Um but you know, Iowa was, if not the first, one of the first states to, yeah. um, right, have the gender balance part of We're one of the few, I think that right, yeah. right. And she said, you know, it it pushed us in, you know, to make progress so mm-hmm. quickly. If you compare Iowa to other states, you know, it was a really powerful law, and mm-hmm. she's very upset that that it obviously and we're at this moment where it's considered to be affirmative action or you know something like that but um it's you know we're we're at a really interesting moment in time Cheryl I I don't know I don't know what more I can tell you about that but that is that is my feeling that it's this yeah. part of this pushback yeah, because one last thing i'll let you go but because if you look around in the other things that's going the other things that are going on in iowa and across the nation that are causing women to feel they're losing ground on so much and does so doesn't that show that we still need <laughs> yeah, and we've never uh, we've never achieved <laughs> gender parity in our legislature oh. yeah okay far from it so thank you well, with Cheryl yeah. on the line and you, Charity, and talking about the unsettled business of women in the in the in in this generation, can't help but think about farm women and how the property was always passed down to the eldest son. And, that, and maybe I don't know if you're getting into that, Cheryl, if you already have, or Charity, or if you already have. But has that changed? Has that expectation changed that you know of? 
Both Cherry and Cheryl? Yeah, maybe Cheryl knows more than I do. Well, the expectation that the land would be handed down uh, to the old, I mean, there still definitely is some of that, but I mean, there has been change in that. And sometimes there is no eldest son, you know, and, and then that, you know, and if the, the daughters have an interest, they're either farming or are renting it out and owning it and becoming active farmland owners in many cases and trying to assert themselves with conservation techniques and that sort of thing. But there is still, you know, sure, there is some of that. And, uh, but a lot of things have changed for uh, farm women. There were a lot of even estate tax laws that were very discriminatory toward women. And it had to prove that they had contributed to the estate, you know, and didn't have to pay tax on half of it. You know, it has come a long way and it's been sort of intertwined with women. Um, you know, in terms of, I remember doing a story on a, a woman not being able to uh, have a credit card. You know, she had no history. I mean, this was not that long ago, really. Uh, and women couldn't have credit cards until the early 70s, period. Right. So, so that was like all women were in that situation. Right. But, you know, so it's sort of intertwined with the general trends that there have been. But uh, but yeah, Julie, I think it's, it's better. Uh, it's better, but, you know, there's still some of that. Definitely. Well, and Mary Ellen pointed out, Julie, in the chat that 55% of farm, Iowa farmland is now owned by women. And a large portion of that, not covered in this series, but I've talked about it on other shows, are elderly women, women who have outlived their husbands and then have the ownership of the land, which <clears throat> means that there's a lot of absentee landlord, you know, and of course, that's incredibly important um, income for those women. It's also a problem that we have in Iowa that so much of the land is owned by people who don't work the land because that creates this space where, you know, asking for conservation initiatives and things like that becomes a whole lot harder or it doesn't feel like a priority because, you know, you're getting your check and the the person is farming. And I'm I am not trying to demonize farmers, trust oh. me. But that that's certainly a, a disconnect that we have as well. Although, you know, more power to those women. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Thank you, Cheryl. Yeah, appreciate it. So Bryce, your hand is up. You are muted. There you go. Uh, yes. Thank you very much, uh, Charity, for coming back from Michigan. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> I remember that very pointedly because I missed you. Oh, but thanks. That's not the point of my comment, uh, although it's worthwhile. Uh, I want to I want to react to Cheryl's uh, description of how it seems to have gotten more difficult with regard to women's issues. I would make that a little broader on issues involving sex in general. I was two weeks in as a freshman in the Iowa legislature when uh, uh, Roe v. Wade came down, and Barbara Madden and others and a number of women on this call, I think, were involved in that. We then went to the ERA, and then the culture wars hit us about in the about 1980 or so, and uh, abortion became the point of the spear on, on both sides of, uh, of women's issues. But what it has done is that your position on abortion, anybody's position on abortion, was a placeholder for a whole lot of issues. And I think that that has made it more difficult uh, for women's issues to get the kind of airing and the, this gender balance issue uh, uh, is a placeholder. That is intended to, to tell women and men alike that that war is over. You can put that one to rest when in fact it is worse. It is more difficult. And in a polarized political atmosphere, it's very difficult to get enough airtime in the middle of those issues to resolve them. And so back to the point for having charity with us and so many of you women, especially on this Zoom that I've enjoyed listening to and, and learn from, is that as a commentator, uh, more, more as an aggregator of experiences of various kinds, you are performing a very valuable service because without that, I'm afraid we would have less hope than for what you are doing. That's oh, my... thanks, Bryce. That's so kind. And, you know, I mean, my my mission with Talk of Iowa, the the thing that keeps me doing the show every day, you know, I, I want to amplify people's voices 
I want people to share their stories and I want to be able to have nuanced and reasonable conversations. And, you know, Bryce, abortion has been a wedge issue in politics, particularly for the last 50 years. And because it was used as a political tool, people weren't allowed to have their nuanced opinions. Like, you know, the majority, the majority of Iowans, polls have shown, approved of the law that's still in place right now because of the uh, the court hold of, you know, abortion being legal in Iowa through 20 weeks. And um, th- you're right. There's just not that space for these moderate conversations for people to say, you know, um, I I wouldn't personally have an abortion. I, you know, I don't like the idea of abortion, but here's a here's a law that makes sense to me. And that's okay. You know, we don't have these these shades of gray conversations. Everything wants we want our politicians want us to paint everything in terms of black and white because that drives fundraising and that enrages the base or, you know, and that's on the right and the left, I would say. for sure. If I could just add very quickly to that, that is why having more women in elected office on both sides of the aisle, I might add, uh, that I think would help generate more of that opportunity to not only deal with the abortion issue, but four or five other issues that that are similar as far as being difficult to deal with uh, unless you've got you meet in the middle. Thanks, Thank you. Thank the you. missing middle. We. <laughs> Which reminds me, what's happening with women in broadcasting? Are you an island? No, not at all. Okay. Not at all. Although it may sound like that on Iowa Public Radio right now. Um, I'm the only woman host on the air um, right now, which is just kind of weird. I mean, and that that doesn't include music, the only woman host in news. Um, I, I feel like that's not symbolic of a trend. <laughs> I think that that's, you know, in Iowa, we're a small market. We have to work pretty hard to get people to come here. And there's an ebb and a flow, you know. Um, but uh, no, in so, you know, and I'm in public radio of all places. I think the majority of people who work in public radio overall it, are women. Um, and, you know, that I do remember when I first started working at WOI Radio in Ames, you know, there were just wonderful broadcasters there who really were the bridged, bridged the generations. You know, um, Don Forsling was there and Doug Brown was there and they had both they both put in almost 50 years, you know, um, unfortunately, um, we lost Doug early, but, um, he had a lot, a lot of years of broadcasting and experiences under his belt. And, you know, Don told me that, uh, back when he was news director at WOI and he couldn't believe that this had happened and that he had said it and, (laughs) and that he was part of it. But he said, you know, we had a woman on staff and I had this woman call me to see if there was a reporter position opening that she could be a part of. And she had worked at CBS News in New York. And I just told her we already have a woman on staff. And she's like, okay. Um, um. (laughs) So, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to the women who paved the way for me. Evelyn Birkby is one of those women from Kitchen Clatter um, down at KMA Radio who paved the way for women in broadcasting, but particularly in public broadcasting. Um, that gender parity has been reached. And we we do have a lot of challenges as far as diversity um, in public broadcasting in Iowa. And we are working on that, but it is hard. I mean, I think anybody who's who's really tried to build the diversity of an organization in the state of Iowa has run into challenges because when 90% of the population in the state is white, um, you know, diversity can be harder to achieve but i do think that we we are a very welcome and opening or welcoming and open place and um we try to make sure that people who who don't necessarily fit a cookie cutter mold of who has come before feel welcome and empowered to be here it, it you know it the you have to have the intention and it's so and it's hard even with even with intention to, yeah. to happen but Sometimes, you know, sometimes that's what it takes. What you know, you mentioned something about outrage and outrage and hate 
does more for ratings than you know, nice book reviews and recipes. and It's true. It's true. We're really missing the boat on outrage. Amazing African violets and, you know, all <laughs> of the things that we love about Talk of Iowa. And, and, and I wonder if, and this is my, this is a concern and, and it may, may be unfounded, but will you ever feel the pressure at public radio now that your community supported I don't think so. I'm okay. sorry. You finish your question. No, no, no. You you know what I'm asking. Yeah. But, you know, I, uh, we are so mission driven and, um, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there will be an evolution over time. There are a lot of people who feel that public radio is more biased than it used to be. And I don't actually believe that is true because I believe that what has happened is that a lot of middle of the ground issues have been politicized. So, you know, where you hear, um, you know, on public broadcasting, people reporting about, let's say, immigration issues and telling people's stories, that's something that would be considered as a, a biased report by somebody who is anti-immigration. Um, however, it's just factual reporting and the amplification of people's voices. So I really think that, um, you know, the, the accusations of bias are really another, just another wedge opportunity. Um, I, you know, it's, you don't get paid a whole lot to work in public broadcasting. This is not where you come to get rich and famous. Um, and the people who work in public broadcasting really, really believe in it and are here because we know that we can be fact-based and we can tell people's stories. We have the time and the opportunity to have nuanced conversations. We can be a place for civil discourse. And I know I sound really naive and like an idealist, but a lot of us are idealists. A lot of us come here because we're idealists. And, um, you know, I think that, again, because you're never going to get rich doing it, you almost have to be a bit of an idealist to to be here in the first place. So I guess I, you know, there are things that have changed on public radio that I don't love, but um, I don't think that that is the danger. And I'm, I'm not a fan of Fox News, surprise, surprise, but I'm also not a fan of MSNBC. Um, and I don't consider them to be equivalent because MSNBC is a lot more factual than a lot of the things that you hear on Fox News, but they both trade in outrage and it's not healthy. Yes. And it's Trump, 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 no matter what. On both. On both. Oh, I know. <laughs> That's all you hear. I'm thinking, oh my God, I, I, I rediscovered network news on CBS and NBC and ABC and I thought, oh, well, yeah, this is this this is good. Why don't I and, and public television? Anyways, uh, Scott Barry, you have your hand up. You're going to need to unmute. And then Charity, I want to I want if it's okay with you, ask you some personal questions. Okay. <laughs> okay, Scott. It was great, great to uh, uh, get to listen to this. I always like uh, when just your name makes me smile when I hear when I hear you on the radio. So that's great. I'll, I'll tell my parents. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and I remember. I remember at one point you talked about siblings, and I think you all have names that are that are uh, meaningful. If I remember. Two of the three of us. Yeah, my my oldest brother's name is Carver, and he was named after George Washington Carver. Oh, Okay. Um, who was, uh, is a family hero. And then, uh, my middle brother though, his name is Nathan and my parents just liked it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I, I just, the discussion and, and this comes up a lot, particularly with old guys, my age, um, the concern about being labeled a predator or considered to be, you know, somebody that's a chauvinist, somebody that, you know, we've earned it. We've earned it. Our generation earned it. We richly deserve it. Um, it's, uh, you know, I've had this conversation. I, the first time that I really, really uh, got into it, I was sitting in a little discussion after a Say What poetry, uh, slam poetry thing. I was sitting with Rosine 
uh, Rosina uh, Bakari. I don't know if anybody knows Rosina. She's moved away from here now. But she was kind of like having a little, she had a bunch of people there. And there were a couple of other men that were much younger. And then there were several women. And, you know, this subject, she she writes, she she has uh, she has an attitude that, that uh, the uh, original sin is rape, you know, and that that's how it's gone. Anyway, they were countering that. And I said, guys, you're just blind. You know, unless you're 25 years old or younger, you grew up doing date rape because getting a woman drunk or getting her high to have sex with her is date rape. Maybe it wasn't in 1966 or maybe we just didn't know that it was. But, you know, we can't we're not going to make any progress until we own our part of this. And uh, we boomers have a big part of it. That's all I Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Well, and it's a Scott, I, I applaud you because it's so easy to be defensive. And, you know, this applies to conversations about race as well. Um, and, you know, I, I've certainly learned an enormous amount about my white privilege over the years. And you have to drop the defensive posture to be able to open your heart and listen. And, you know, uh, our culture has changed dramatically. And I mean, Scott, when I watch movies from the 1980s, there are movies that I fondly remember. And I watch them and I'm horrified, horrified by some of what I see. But I'm like, yeah, that is how the culture was. We all 100% accepted. I don't know if I don't see a lot of Gen Xers in the crowd here, but, you know, we grew up watching all those John Hughes movies and like the movie 16 Candles, um, the the main hero guy basically just gives his passed out girlfriend to another guy and says, have fun, you know, um, and that was that nobody blinked an eye at that. But that doesn't make all men bad and all men wrong but i think we can also all look at that and say well that's wrong and if we can't if we can't drop our defenses enough to say that's wrong then we can't have very uh productive conversations so scott thank you so much for that i think that's a that's yeah and a topic for another day yeah a topic for another day charity is um young men today you know they're not they're not going to college in the numbers that they used to used to enroll and they're there's a part of segment of young young boys that are kind of disappearing i don't know where they're going and they have high suicide rates and yeah. no it's really scary i don't know um i this unfortunately this is a victim of the pandemic but that was i used to be a girls on the run host or coach i don't know if you guys are familiar with the girls on the run program it's a really wonderful empowering program for girls and um i worked with a, another woman here in iowa to bring a similar program for boys to iowa uh, called let me run and that's you know that's what it's it's an it doesn't it's it's a way to empower boys to feel their feelings and make good decisions and understand that it's okay when you're different. It's okay if you fit in too, you know, it's not uh, my, my, somebody was like, oh, you're just emasculating young boys. Like, no, we're empowering young boys to get to be their authentic selves. And uh, we need so much more of that. So much more of that. So, so back to you personally, the, to the topic of your po podcast is unsettled. We're all a little unsettled. Talk about your unsettledness at this stage of life. Oh, goodness. Well, I am um, what is, some of you probably have kids in this state, uh, are, I'm, I'm part of what's defined as the sandwich generation right now. So I have a daughter who's a freshman in college. My son is a sophomore in high school. And then I also have elderly parents and um, my mom is suffering from serious dementia. And so I'm working really hard to help my dad take care of her and help her, you know, stay at home and, and have as good a quality of life as possible. So um, I'm, that's part of <laughs> like my life challenges is being very much squished and still responsible for kids and still responsible for my parents and working full-time at the same time. Um, I've been meaning to do a show about that 
that's that's coming sometime. Um, but then also, and I, I think that a lot of people experience this at these these big moments of change because I will be an empty nester in a couple of years. And so there is also the question of, okay, if I'm not if I'm not Audrey and Carter's mom, I know I'm always going to be their mom, but if I'm not actively being their mom, then who am I? <laughs> that's that's a question too. And I also come from a no, my my wonderful mother who has dementia. Um, my mom never relaxed ever. She she was a real dynamo, and I know some of you may have heard of her, but she um, she was an elementary school guidance counselor. She was a wildlife rehabilitator. She went back to college and got her PhD when I was in college, and she's written a book. And you know, she just was always pushing herself. She founded two different nonprofits that are both celebrating their 40th anniversaries, you know, um, and and I'm also thinking I don't have to work all the time. It's OK to not follow in her footsteps in that way as well. It's OK to take care of myself and take care of my uh, we live on two acres out in the country and we're working really hard to to plant native plants and it's okay to nurture my environment and not always be busy and to watch a funny tv show every once in a while so <laughs> absolutely well i'm so glad that you were with us today and i'm thrilled that you're coming to the okaboji writers retreat i'm excited to come back this will be fun you're gonna have a blast and thank you again uh, how do people find your podcast? All right. So actually, I find Unsettled to be a little bit difficult to find. But if you if you go on your web browser, if you type in ipr.org slash unsettled, you'll find it there. If you do use podcasts and you just, you know, have your, your podcast, whatever app you use, like on Apple Podcasts, if you type in Unsettled Iowa, it'll pop up first, but unsettled is, you're right that it's a good name, Julie, but obviously it's a name other people like as well. So <laughs> we're a little bit lost in the mix there. I know. I noticed that. I noticed that. That's yeah. why I want to make sure to ask you how to, how people could find it. I also in put 2018, it was not nearly as hard to find as it is now. So I, if we had named it from scratch these days, I don't know that we would have picked it. That says something, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Well, Unsettled is certainly worth a listen. And oh my God, we didn't talk about Barbie. Rats. That's all right. Everybody else is. We'll let them do it. Well, I do want to thank you for that conversation because I had all these mixed feelings watching the movie, but I didn't have anybody really I was talking to about it. So thank you for that conversation. It helped. Anytime you want to talk about Barbie, give me a call. (laughs) (laughs) All right. See you in September, if not before. Thank you, everybody, for being on the call. Thank you, everybody. It was wonderful. I had a great time. Good. Bye-bye.